0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens
0: with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, Stay Tuned listeners. I was pleased to learn last week that Stay Tuned has been nominated for a Webby Award for the best individual episode of a podcast. The selection is for an interview I did last year with Bill Browder. As many of you know, Browder became the driving force behind the Magnitsky Act and is often described as Putin's number one foe. So if you haven't already, check out the episode and cast your vote at webbyawards.com. You can also find the link to vote in the show notes to this episode. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barara.
1: I never had the faintest interest in writing a book just to tell the life of a great man. From the minute I started thinking about writing books, I thought of using the lives of certain men as a way to examine political power, because it's political power that I was interested in.
0: That's Robert Caro, legendary author and personal writing hero of mine. Not to mention two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He's the author of The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, and several volumes in The Years of Lyndon Johnson, and also the new book, Working. I speak with him about the mechanics of power and how he uncovers the details and stories that bring them to light. That's coming up. Stay tuned. What is justice? How is it served? Who wields it? How is it accomplished? And when does it fail? These are some of the questions and moral quandaries that I wrestle with in my new book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law. It is also about the stories and timeless principles that can help us understand this moment in history. Doing Justice came out in March, and to the great relief of my mom and dad, it debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you to everyone who has shown their support so far and read the book. I see your kind tweets and emails and comments, and it means a lot to me. So if you enjoyed the book, please consider heading to Amazon and writing a review for Doing Justice. Every review helps other people find the book. To learn more about Doing Justice and to order a copy for yourself or your friends, head to doingjusticebook.com. It's also available as an audiobook. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from a tweet from user Jonathan Howard, whose Twitter handle is at staring as polite. That's one way of thinking about it. The question is, what do you make of the news that Mueller did include an executive summary intended to be shareable publicly, as you said, would have been common practice, and in fact included multiple such summaries? Does it change your view of Barr's handling thus far? Hashtag ask Preet. So this whole mystery about the Mueller report and the accuracy of Bill Barr's summary of it, although he continues not to call it a summary, although, of course, it is a summary, as I keep saying, will be resolved, hopefully, in the next six or seven days, because Barr himself in his testimony this week before the House said he expects a version of the report to be released within a week. So I think we'll find out uh, relatively soon, depending on the extensiveness of the redactions, how accurate his summary was. It's an interesting question you raise, and the reports are that there have been uh, one or more summaries that the Mueller team themselves prepared, you know, perhaps with an eye towards those things becoming public in advance of the full report, given potential redactions that have to take place. But the report also said, that I read at least, that the special counsel's office did not make a direct request to Bill Barr to release those summaries. So they were prepared. Maybe they were prepared by the team in an abundance of caution. And some members of the team thought it would be helpful. But at the end of the day, Bob Mueller thought of his task as narrow and didn't think that he should be dictating to Bill Barr or anyone else, what in fact should be released. That's the best sense I have of things. But there's another interesting thing related to your question and to your point that Bill Barr said in his testimony before the house this week. And that is that even though Bill Barr did not consult with Bob Mueller and his team in the preparation of the letter, the four page letter, and Bob Mueller and his team were not involved in the preparation of that letter Barr did say that he offered Mueller the opportunity to take a look at the letter before it was released and that Bob Mueller declined that request. That's sort of interesting, and various people have different views of what that means. It seems to me a pretty smart move. Bob Mueller probably thought his report speaks for itself and that should become public in some form at some point in the future. And why allow Bill Barr or someone else to say that Mueller took a look at the summary and implicitly approved the summary it's a very difficult thing, I think, if you've written a three or 400-page report, to think that a four-page summary does it justice, especially given, as you say in your, in your question, that they had prepared their own summaries. Probably better for Bob Mueller to let Bill Barr own his own summary and for Bob Mueller to own his own report, and we'll see how those two things compare if and when they become public. By the time the next day Tuned episode drops next Thursday, I imagine we'll know the answer to some of these questions, so maybe I shouldn't be making predictions now, but it sounds like from Barr's public testimony, it sounds like we'll have more redactions than perhaps necessary because among other things, people have been speculating about whether Bill Barr would choose to seek an order from a court to allow the release of certain grand jury material. That is something that's provided for in the rules, although there's some debate about whether or not it applies to a congressional proceeding or applies to an impeachment proceeding or applies preliminarily to an impeachment proceeding. So putting that all that debate aside... Bill Barr seemed to settle the question of whether he was going to seek an order, basically putting it on the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who he claims has equal right and responsibility and opportunity to make that petition to the court. So I imagine that what is produced publicly will be heavily redacted. There'll be fights about it. It sounds like Bill Barr is providing to the public exactly what he intends to provide to Congress, and you could have a big debate on whether or not Congress deserves to have a less redacted version than the public. Especially folks uh, who were the chairs and ranking members of the Judiciary Committee and the Intel Committee, who I think are entitled to see a version of the report that is not redacted for classified information or ongoing investigations. This next question is a tweet from David, whose handle is at dgkdc, who asks: Given the number of acting and therefore unconfirmed cabinet positions, can the Twenty-Fifth Amendment even be invoked on our cognitively declining hashtag #POTUS at this point? Hashtag #AskPreet David, thanks for your question. As I've said many, many times before, uh, I don't think the 25th Amendment would be invoked. The likelihood of that is really, really low, even if you had all Senate-confirmed people in place in the Cabinet. I think more troubling, because it's more of a reality that we have to deal with, is the fact that we have so many acting and unconfirmed Cabinet positions. Obviously, your question is provoked by the resignation just this week of Kirsten Nielsen, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security. But her deputy also resigned. We have never had a permanent Senate-confirmed official to head ICE. We still have an acting Secretary of Defense. We still have an acting UN ambassador. We have an acting Secretary of the Interior. And the list seems to go on and on. We don't even have a permanent Chief of Staff, even though the White House does not need Senate approval for a Chief of Staff. As the President has said at least once, He prefers acting because he has more flexibility, but the problem is that's not how it works. The president is entitled to his White House staff, you know, basically unfettered. He has chosen to exercise that authority very broadly and controversially. He has, uh, as among his advisors, his own daughter, his own son-in-law, and various other people who were not able in the ordinary course to get security clearances. And, you know, we can have oversight of that and we can criticize that, but basically he can do what he pleases. With respect to the heads of cabinet, agencies, like the Department of Justice, like the Department of Defense, like the Department of Homeland Security. The Constitution provides very clearly, as you all know, that he nominates and the Senate advises and consents or withholds its consent. And what you have now is an increasing number of people who are heads of agencies that literally employ hundreds of thousands of people and take care of, you know, some of the most important and sensitive matters for the country including national security including going to war including defending the homeland, including protection of the president as far as the Secret service is concerned, including border security you know you name it they do these things and nonchalantly having an acting person in those positions to basically avoid any check on the part of the Senate is I think inappropriate and a problem and it's something that flies a little bit under the radar screen someone tweeted recently that there may come a day when we realize that this was maybe one of the most significant power grabs, I think that day is now. And I think we need to address it. And I think it's one of the things that we may think about in the future with respect to how long a president can delay in nominating a permanent candidate for a position that has been unfilled because either he has caused it to be unfilled by firing someone or death or some other accident. We need permanent people in those positions and those people need to be approved by the Senate. This next question comes in a tweet from Rebecca Augustine who says, at Preet Bharara, had you always planned to do the podcast and book when you were done being a U.S. attorney, or did your unplanned hiring and then firing by DJT set you on a course you hadn't expected? Just curious, hashtag ask Preet. Yeah, it was kind of of unexpected. Uh, You know, I had always anticipated that I would have, you know, a bit of a runway and began to think about things that I might do when Donald Trump got elected. And the first thing I did was plan a family vacation which I hadn't taken a serious one in a long time for both budgetary and other reasons. And, you know, my thinking about what I might do next was cut short because within a week, literally, of the election, I was given to understand that Donald Trump wanted me to stay on. So when I left office, you know, a lot of people talked to me about writing a book. I had, as I say in the book itself, I'd always had this thought of writing something that was a guide of principles that I had thought about when I ran the Southern District. And then I had occasion to think about it more deeply and thought, well, maybe these stories that I can tell and these these thoughts I have about fairness and justice and truth and evidence, maybe those are things that are applicable to lots of people's lives, not just people who are interested in in criminal justice or or who are in the criminal justice field. The podcast was begun a little bit on a lark. Um, I decided I wanted to talk about some of the issues that are important to me. I want to advocate for some of them. I wanted to talk to really interesting people who were smart in an in-depth way. So that also sort of happened unexpectedly. And my brother was kind enough to, you know, spearhead it because he has a media company. And so things happened sort of accidentally. And they've turned out pretty well. Thanks for your question. So before we get to the interview with Bob Caro, uh, as I'm sitting here in the studio on Wednesday, April 10th in the 11 a.m. hour, uh, I understand that Bill Barr, the attorney general, has been giving some testimony before a Senate subcommittee in which he said some things that are bound to occupy the attention of a lot of folks, today, tomorrow, and maybe for the next number of days. The headline in the New York Times seems fairly significant, and it is this. William Barr testimony updates spying did occur on Trump campaign, and it appears that Bill Barr is making the suggestion before the Senate subcommittee that there was unauthorized surveillance of the Trump campaign leading up to the election in 2016. Then he says you know, surveillance of a campaign is a big deal. I don't disagree with that. It is also true that if there's evidence that there is some kind of collaboration or reason to worry about Russian efforts to reach out to a campaign, that's a big deal too. I want to be careful that I have not heard the testimony directly, and I don't have all the details of it, and it seems that Bill Barr himself was kind of spare in what he said. Even the New York Times article itself says it was not immediately clear what Mr. Barr was referring to, and he did not present evidence to back up his statement. What I think is significant is that Bill Barr suggests that there should be a look at the genesis and the conduct of intelligence activities directed at the Trump campaign. As a general matter, without knowing more details, I don't have any inherent issue with people taking a look in good faith at you know, how powers were used. Bill Barr notably, by the way, makes it a point to say that he doesn't believe it was the FBI. Uh, and he's not talking about the FBI. He's talking about other, I guess, agencies in the intelligence community. But if someone wants to take a look at how authorities were used and how an investigation was done, and they're doing it in good faith rather than in a retaliatory, punitive way, which you worry about because that's how the president talks about it because he doesn't like being investigated, didn't like being investigated, unclear which of those things it is. It's also slightly odd because some of these issues have been looked at. The New York Times article, which may be updated by the time you you hear this tomorrow, but for the moment it says this. It says that Mr. Barr said that he will work with the FBI director, Christopher A. Ray, to examine the origins of the Bureau's counterintelligence investigation of the Trump campaign, and that he would soon set up a team for that effort, implying that he's going definitively down the path of doing some kind of review. But then the Times article also says that Bill Barr noted that Congress and the Justice Department's inspector general have already completed investigations of that matter and that after reviewing those investigations, he would be able to see whether there are any, quote, remaining questions to be addressed, close quote, which suggests that he's maybe just thinking about it and maybe there's no need to have a further inquiry. So so it's also unclear. On On the one hand, he says it's not necessarily the FBI. It's the intelligence community. On the other hand, he's saying that he wants to examine the origins of the Bureau's investigation, He also said, and this is important as well, I am not suggesting those rules were violated, meaning the surveillance rules, but he wants to take a look. So there seems to be a bit of hedging and not full clarity on what Bill Barr intends. At this point, sitting here in the studio before noon on Wednesday, I don't know where it will lead. I don't know how this will play out, how it will unfold, but it's something obviously that's significant and I think that we need to keep an eye on. I mean, one of the other things that Bill Barr says he's troubled by Is that the campaign, the Trump campaign, was not advised of the activities that were taking place by the intelligence community? I'm not in a position yet to say whether that's a legitimate concern or not. But what I know is that Ann and I will certainly be talking about this more on the Insider podcast Monday morning. This week's Stay Tuned presents the first episode in a series of occasional conversations with writers about their craft, their lives, and life lessons. There is no one better to kick off the series than Robert Caro. I don't use the word legendary lightly or frequently, but in this case, it really applies. In 1974, Caro wrote The Power Broker, a biography of New York City master planner Robert Moses. He followed it with a series of acclaimed books on Lyndon Johnson. Four have been published so far, and the last one is expected in a few years. For two of the books he's written, he's won the Pulitzer Prize. In the meantime, he's written a new book called Working. It's about his process, how he uncovers the truths and details that bring the mechanics of power to light. I speak with him about how people rise to power and how they use it for good or ill, and the joy of research, the pain of writing, and why you have to turn every page. That's coming up. Stay tuned. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics in depth, including lots of the things we like to cover in this podcast, politics and news, international affairs, and culture. Not to mention, The New Yorker touches on subjects that many readers may not have previously put much thought into, like the world's diminishing supply of sand, paper jams, stink bugs, and hunting down heirloom beans. The New Yorker's incredible roster is includes former Stay Tuned guest Ronan Farrow, who's written breaking pieces on Harvey Weinstein and CBS's Les Moonves. I spoke with Jane Mayer about Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. And another Stay Tuned guest, Jeffrey Tubin, wrote an in-depth profile of Brian Stevenson, who was himself here on the show not long ago. Now you can save 50% and get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for only $6 when you go to newyorker.com slash preet. Enter promo code preet. You also get an exclusive tote bag, as well as the New Yorker's apps, online archive, and crossword puzzle. And you'll have unlimited access to newyorker.com, which publishes 10 to 15 web-only stories every day. That's newyorker.com pret preet. Enter promo code preet. Support for today's show comes from Away, luggage that's at home on the road and carries you forward, making your trip a little easier. By using high-quality materials like premium German polycarbonate and selling directly to you, Away is able to offer resistant lightweight luggage at a much lower price. Choose from a variety of colors and four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large, for extended stays. And both sizes of the carry-on can charge cell phones, tablets, anything powered by a USB cord. Every Away suitcase features a TSA-approved combination lock built into the bag to prevent theft. Best of all, thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they will fix or replace it for you for life. My family uses the bigger carry-on when we travel. And let me tell you, avoiding the luggage carousel is a unique joy. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com preet and use promo code preet during checkout. That's awaytravel.com preet and use promo code PREET during checkout for $20 off a suitcase. Robert Caro, thanks so much for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. So you don't go by Robert, you go by Bob. Yeah. So it's very odd for me to think about calling you Bob because I'm a a huge fan. I have been reading your books for many, many years. For me, it's a huge privilege and honor to be in the same room with you and to be asking you about your writing process, a rookie myself in the publishing business. So I'll try to call you Bob. But if I revert to Robert, <laughs> please, please please, forgive me and, and forgive the formality. If you would allow me one more indulgence, since I have you here, your book, Master of the Senate, has special meaning for me because I read it before I began working in the, US, in the U.S. Senate. I was a staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee for four and a half years. And one thing I did, which sounds kind of corny, and I'm now revealing it to the tens and hundreds of millions of people who listen to this podcast. On my very last day, or second to last day, when I was about to be confirmed to be the US attorney, I felt a sense of nostalgia because I think it's, it was an amazing privilege to work in the Senate. And not only to work in the Senate, but to have access as a high level staffer to the Senate floor. And I sat on the Senate floor many times next to my boss at the time, Senator Schumer, with the little staff chair when he would give an address that I wrote, yeah. or would vote on you know, various matters, not when he voted, the staff would sit in a special section, sort of in the back corner, which I know you know very well, opposite the corner that had the desk with the candy. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, there's a desk with candy in it. And I took a copy of your book, the hardcover copy of your book, and spent an hour, one of my last few hours in the Senate as a staffer thinking, I may never be here again. And I opened up to the first chapter of the book, which I believe is called The Desks of the Senate. Yes. And you recite the history of who sat at which desk, what they're made of, and you described it. And I, and I read the desks of the Senate mm. while I was sitting with the desks of the Senate. Mm. And it was a very sort of special moment for me, so thank you for that.
1: It was a special moment for me the first time I went down in the well and looked around at the desk.
0: So they gave you special privilege, even though you were not a staffer and not a member of the Senate.
1: Well, the Senate historian, both Senate historians, were long time friends of mine because I've been do I've been asking them for so many things. And one day one of them said, "Have you ever been down in the well when there's nobody when the Senate's not in session?" And I said, "No, not when this. I've never been there when the Senate's not. It's quite an experience. You go down there, you turn around and there are these four glowing arcs of desks, you know, highly burnished wood, and you say, "God, Webster, Clay and Calhoun yeah. stood at these desks when they were making speeches." That was actually a big moment. It's a moment I said, you know, I don't care. I'm going to tell the history of the Senate is fabulous. And I want to tell it as well as the story of Lyndon Johnson. Is that when you thought to write about the desks? Or did you have that experience after you wrote about the desks? No, that's what got me to write about it. the desks. I'd never thought of that before. So you have a new book, which I'm pleased to tell people
0: who don't have a lot of time, Uh, that it's a bit shorter than than the average Robert A. Caro book. It's called Working, Researching, Interviewing, Writing. Now, I hesitate to call it... Would you call it a memoir?
1: It's sort of... No, not a full memoir. It's like recollections. It's like glimpses of how I work. Yeah.
0: On the cover, I think I have an advanced copy, but I presume the cover will be the same. It's you sitting on a desk with a white legal pad... You still use the white legal pad?
1: Yeah, I write my first drafts in longhand still. Still? Yeah.
0: And you're sitting in front of, on the desk, is it an IBM?
1: No, it's a smith corona Corona Smith-Corona-Electra. 210.
0: Typewriter. Yes.
1: You still use that? Yes. You ever thought about moving to computer word processing? I sometimes use the computer to take notes, but see, I try to slow myself down. My problem when I was young was I felt I wrote too fast. I didn't think things through. So I just saw it when that was when I was a reporter. I think I was I was a really fast rewrite man on Newsday when I was a young journalist. I remembered something that happened to me at Princeton. I took a creative writing course with an old, very courtly, soft-spoken Southern gentleman, a very famous critic at the time, R. P. Blackmer. And I handed in a short story to him. I took his course for two years. Every two weeks, I handed in a short story. He always said something complimentary. I was always doing these things at the very last minute, you know, an all-nighter. I was always pulling all-nighters, is what we used to call them. And I thought I was fooling him. And then at our last session, he says something nice to me, and then he says, this is practically the last thing he said to me. He says, but you know, Mr. Caro, you're never going to achieve what you want to achieve if you don't stop thinking with your fingers. And Preet, did you ever have the feeling that someone has seen right through you? He's been (laughs) seeing right through you all along. I said, he knows I'm not really thinking about these stories because it's too easy for me to just dash them off. So when I was a newspaper man, I, I continued being a very fast rewrite man. But when I stopped to do The Power Broker, my first book, I said this is really complicated. I can't do this the same way. I've got to slow myself down. And the first thing I thought of is I'm going to do my first drafts in longhand, because that's the slowest way of committing your thoughts to paper.
0: But correct me if I'm wrong, it's not that your writing has necessarily gotten slower, and that's how you slowed yourself down. Is it that, or is it that you decided that you need to think more before you actually wrote things down and research more. Exactly right.
1: That's exactly right, yes.
0: So once you've done that, do you think your pace of writing is still as speedy as it was?
1: Yes. You know, when I finish the research, then I set myself, and I'm starting to write, I set myself a goal of a thousand words a day. And I usually meet that goal. The writing isn't what takes long, it's the researching that takes And the thinking. To thinking, yes. You know, so my books are so long. So I do something that's really weird. I'm not sure I, I should be saying this to the public.
0: It's, it's but, exactly what you should be saying to the public. Well, we want all the weird stuff.
1: Well, here, okay, here's the here's, here's <laughs> weird here, stuff. That's what stuff. podcasts are for. <laughs> when I finish writing a book, I finish researching a book, I have all this material. I make myself not write until I can boil down what the book is about. I like to try to make it into one paragraph, but I usually fail. It's usually two or even three paragraphs. But I don't start writing until I boil it down that way. Then I type those out. I put it up on the corkboard next to my desk. And let's say for the next three years while I'm writing, I make everything relate to those couple of paragraphs
0: i've seen you also say that it's not just the two or three paragraphs but that you want to have the last sentence of the book even if it's an 1100 or 1200 page book you want to know what the last sentence is going to be so you are inexorably leading up to that last sentence
1: i learned that in the power broker that was my first book i had this huge mass of material And I couldn't think how to write it. I couldn't think how to outline it. It was a very frustrating and actually terrible time for me. So Robert Moses had long since stopped speaking to me, but I would go whenever he appeared in public. So he was dedicating something out of Flushing Meadow at the World's Fair site before a small audience. All his men, his engineers, were all sitting in the first couple of rows, and I was sitting in the back row Point of his speech is he said, someday we're going to sit here and talk about the ingratitude of the public toward (laughs) great men, by which he meant himself. And I said, why aren't they grateful? I see all the heads of Moses's subordinates nodding, yes, why aren't they grateful? And all of a sudden I said, yeah, that's the last line of the book. Why weren't they grateful? Why did he build all these highways and parks? Why aren't people more grateful to him? That's the last line of the book. Why weren't they grateful? I went back to my office and was able to just sit down and outline the whole power broker and write it very easy. So I learned my lesson. I have yeah, you to You did
0: it in, in like two or three months, right? <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> How many years was it?
1: To research and write. Yeah. I worked on the power broker for seven years. For seven years. Yes. Yeah.
0: Do you worry at all that if you have the last sentence in mind, that that's improperly shaping the route to that last sentence? Or is it that you've already done the research and so you know what the path is going to
1: be? Well, I've already done the research. I don't always know how to put it into a book form. But once I see that last sentence, which that can take a long... You know, it sounds... I'm being too glib about it. It takes a long time sometimes to find that last sentence. But if I find, if I know it, writing the book gets easier. Because it focuses you. Uh, well, it organizes right. it. Yeah. right.
0: So let's talk about research, because I think people have not appreciated how much time that takes, and you can have a bit of impatience. You have a phrase that you say was was one of the better pieces of advice you ever got from, I think, an editor of yours, because you began as an investigative journalist. This was at Newsday. Yes. And this editor said to you, turn every page. Yes. And you said that has stuck with you. What does that mean?
1: Well, that was the first piece of advice. I wasn't an investigative reporter. I was like the low man on the totem pole doing obituaries and short articles. But through an accident, I had to go down and go through a whole mass of files at a federal agency on a Saturday because every we couldn't get anybody else. Everyone else was at a picnic on Fire Island. No one had cell phones <laughs> and right. you couldn't reach. I was the only guy in the office because I was the lowest reporter. And finally, an editor said in a tone of real apprehension. I guess you'll have to go yourself. And I spent all night working through the files. I really loved, I'd never done that before. Just like, gee, I love doing this. I wrote a memo for the real reporters who would write the real story. And the next day I was back home and there was this editor, a tough old guy out of the 1920s, out of the front page. And he had never had I went to Princeton. He had never allowed them to hire anybody from the Ivy League. I was the first Ivy League graduate in his city room in like twenty years. The twenty years he had been there, and his secretary says Alan, his name was Alan Hathaway. Secretary says Alan wants to see you right away. So I said to Ina, "Thank God we didn't move. We we're still we we're living in New Jersey. Newsday was on Long Island." I said, "I'm about to be fired," and I drove <laughs> in there just absolutely sure i was going to be fired and and his secretary june says go right in alan wants to see you and i see he's reading my memo and i went in and after a while he looks up at me and he says i didn't know someone from princeton could do digging like this from now on you do investigative work so i don't have a lot of savoir faire in moments like that and i remember saying to him (laughs) something like But I don't know anything about investigative work. (laughs) And he looks up at me, and I've never... You know, there are moments in your life you don't forget. And he said, just remember one thing. Turn every page. Never assume anything. Turn every goddamn page. To tell you the truth... That stuck with me my whole life. So when I get down to the Johnson Library, of course, you can't turn every page. There's like 40 Too many 50. pages. Yeah. All
0: right. Some people say that about one of your books.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. <laughs> they
0: shouldn't. When you refer to Ina, that's your wife. Yes. Who is also an important editor for you.
1: Well, she's a researcher. She's really the only person I've ever been able to trust to do research besides myself. Why is that Well, I learned it because while I was doing the power broker, we were really broke, and I got hurt playing basketball when you're when you 're in your thirties, you should learn not to play basketball <laughs> anymore, but oh. I got hurt in a pickup game. I had to stay in my, in a bed for a number of months, and I needed someone to do the research, so I would tell I and when I was a reporter at Newsday, I spent a lot of time in the county Nassau County Courthouse in Mineola. So I would say to her, go up to the second floor of that courthouse. There's a telephone booth there. Call me from there. She'd call me. I'd say, now, turn around. There's a double door there to the county clerk's office. You go in. They're going to ask you what you want to see. You want to go to the second aisle on your right and look up whatever. And I learned that if there was something there to find, she was so thorough and conscientious, she would find it.
0: What kind of, if I can ask this, (laughs) what kind of personality does it take to not only be dedicated to turning every page and immersing yourself in the research, but enjoying it. You said you enjoy it. And my own, you know, parallel experience as, you know, as a federal prosecutor overseeing a lot of cases, there were some people who were very good at trial, which is a bit of the storytelling, right? And the research had been done and they come in at the last minute and they tell the spellbinding story to the jury. Uh, And they might not be so good at turning every page and doing the investigation. And there were some other people who were not great at trial but they would immerse themselves in the emails and the and the documents and the phone records and the financial records that looks like mush to a lot of people and loved it night after night after night and figured out who did what and why it's rare to find somebody who can do both and you as a writer have been able to do both both immerse yourself in the investigation and then also tell the beautiful story what kind of personality traits do you have that enable you to do both of those things?
1: Well, that's fascinating what you said, that you observed that there were two types of people. I happen to really love going through, you know, you're looking at the in the Johnson Library. You have the transcripts of telephone tapes. You have, well, he usually didn't allow minutes to be taken of the Vietnam decision-making meeting, but you have pretty detailed notes of them. You, talk, you interview the people. You say, you know, I'm coming closer to what actually happened. I, I love that process. Writing is very different. Writing is very hard for me. I mean, there's nothing fun for me about, <laughs> uh, about writing.
0: But you like having written.
1: Uh, I really like <laughs> having, I like, no, I like having published <laughs> having published, yeah. and having sold <laughs> yeah. as I'm, as I'm discovering yeah. having sold, yeah. selling, as you were doing. selling yeah. is good. Right. Your, your, your books are still available in every
0: bookstore yeah. that I walk into, but to tell a story, I want to go back to storytelling. Cause I think it's a fascinating thing. You do all this research and you immerse. So I'm going to, I'm going to press you again to explain how you have this incredible ability Because you can find a million facts. Let's say you go in and you you do the research, you turn every page and you go to the library and Aina helps you get the material together. So now you have one million undifferentiated facts and you want to tell a particular story. And maybe even in your case, you already know where the story ends. What is the process of selection and how do you think about the storytelling so the characters come alive and it's not just a dried recitation of what happened?
1: uh, You ask terrific questions. I mean... One of the things I do, you were kind enough to say I make the characters come alive. One of the things I say, you know, like in The Power Broker, I said, well, you know, the rise of the Irish in New York is an important part of the story. So you can either give people a lecture on the rise of the Irish in New York, or you can tell it through the life of Alfred E. Smith, who was the first Irish Catholic to become governor, you know. Mm -hmm. And he made, you know... Oscar Handlin, a historian, once said, Al Smith is the consequential person in American history, most forgotten by history. Franklin Roosevelt said to Francis Perkins, his secretary of labor, you know, Francis, 90% of everything we've done in the New Deal, Al Smith did first in New York. I said, this is a fascinating life. I can tell the rise of the Irish, the significance of them through this life and make it, I can, if I can write it well enough, that's what you always say to yourself. If I can manage to write it well enough, then people will read it, and that sounds easier than it is. I no, mean, I can't, if, you, if you looked at <laughs> my office, you'd, at the end of a day, you'd see so many crumpled up pieces of paper that I've thrown out. Do you do you read novels? I love novels. And books. but uh, and are your models
0: for writing your books that are tremendous exercises in storytelling? Are your models other? history books or biographies,
1: or are they in part novels? In part, part. they're the novels of Anthony Trollope, who was a 19th century, he wrote six political novels, they're called the Palliser novels, because he seemed to understand something that I think you understand from your career, and I understand, or I think I understand, that politics and government turns on character, on people, and these officials' character is in a way the fate of government. And you say, why did Lyndon Johnson, why did he have these two sides of him? One side is this horrible side of leading this nation into this incredible war. I mean, he sent almost 600,000, think of that, 600,000 men over to fight in the jungles of Asia. What kind of a guy does that? On the other hand, he's the guy who passes the first voting rights, the first civil rights, Head Start, Medicare. Medi- oh, so you say, that's personality, that's character that that accounts for this.
0: You also talk about, and I assume this is related to storytelling, the power of place.
1: Yes. What do you mean by that? Well quality of writing, pre, is just as important in a biography or any work of history as it is in a novel. That's something that I just don't think is understood as much as it should be. And one of the things that matters in novels is a sense of place that you can see the reader. If the novel is good, the, the writer has done enough so the reader can see in his mind the place that this is Taking place, I think that's very important, and I try to do it. I am not saying I succeed in doing it all. I no,
0: I, I think I think you do. Do you, are you a good observer,
1: or are you usually writing
0: about historical things so you can go back and find photographs and, and people's photographs no. and people's memories?
1: No, the, I'd say the opposite of that. I mean, in order to do the books, to show the human cost, you know what I believe is that if you want to write books about power. You can't just write about the powerful people who wield power. You have to write about the powerless, the people without power on whom government has an effect, either for good or for ill. So to do that, you have to spend a lot of time, like with Lyndon Johnson and the Hill Country, I had to get to know the women who lived in the hill country before, you know, when Lyndon Johnson runs for Congress, he's 28 when he's running, they don't have any electricity there. So the people, the women had to haul up every bucket from the from the wells. They had to do the wash by hand, you know, on, on broomsticks. They had to iron with these heavy slabs of iron, which they kept heated on a, on a stove, even in the hottest weather there. And the women were stooped and bent from this labor. Bent was the word, Women are we're bent, you know what he runs for Congress at twenty eight. You know what the law. He says if you elect me, you won't look like your mother looks. <laughs> you know that's a political genius <laughs> because he was going to electrify. He was going to electrify. In order to understand what their lives were like, I said to Ina, you know, I don't understand this country. It's so lonely. It's so isolated. I said we're going to have to move there. I didn't realize it was going to take three years. But you have to get to know the people, the people who were thrown out for Robert Moses' And the heart. place, and you go there, and you spent three, in three Texas, years three there. Three years, yes, we lived there. When I said that to her, we're going to have to live there. She said, why can't you be doing a biography of Napoleon? <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's been said about that chapter you're describing, of electrification, that this is something that on its face seems utterly boring. yes you know, the impact of electrification of a rural area of Texas. And again, you bring it to life in part by taking the time, turning every page, going to the place, meeting the people, you know, letting it all sink in. Can I ask you, do you take some pride and do you seek out opportunities to write about things that may seem on their surface mundane and boring, like bridges and roads, Mm -hmm. and
1: then bring them to life, or it just happens to be what you write about? No, it's, it's not. It just... I didn't know this was a story. Like, I remember this woman, they all lived on isolated, really lonely ranches there. The Hill Country was an empty, impoverished place when we moved there. Now it's Austin has expanded out. But I remember this one woman saying to me, you're a city boy. You don't know how heavy a bucket of water is, do you? And I said, so she takes me out to this well, which was covered with wooden boards, and she pushes the boards aside, and she gets out of her garage, a water bucket still had f- the rope attached. She says, now drop it down. I dropped it down. Now, the, the average depth of a, will, a well in the hill country is like 75 feet deep. Drop it down. She says, now pull it up. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's, it's heavy. And then you think, you know, her husband, these people were so poor, they couldn't have hired help. The husband was not home to help her. When her kids got, he was out working in the fields or rounding up the cattle. Her kids, the minute they get old enough to work, they had to help the father. So you say she had to pull up the water all by herself all day. There was a Department of Agriculture study that I found from 1940 that said the average farm family uses 200 gallons of water a day. That's all pulled up by one woman. Then this woman, another woman, said to me, I mean, there are moments because you're there, she said, do you want to see how we carry the water? She meant so she could carry two buckets at a time. To this moment, I can see she pulled up the door of her garage, and there was her yoke. I mean, it was a yoke like cattle wore. It's a heavy bar of wood. And you look at this woman, you know, you say... That's why they're so stooped. That's why they're so bent. It's not something that you intend. If you immerse yourself in a place, you sometimes find out this is a waste of time. You're just wasting your time. But sometimes you say, so Lyndon Johnson had this genius for turning compassion into law, okay? He turns his compassion for these people without electricity. He says, I'm going to bring you electricity if you elect me. He does that, and their lives have changed. Is that your principal advice
0: to writers today, to make sure that you spend the time, both in connection with turning every page, the primary research, but also going to the place? There's another story that you've told about Lyndon Johnson when he was very young, and he was a staffer in the Congress, and he would run to work in the morning. Hmm. And, you know, most people would have that story, and you might write that story and include it in the book. You didn't just restate that he used to run to work in the morning. You wanted to know why. And so what did you do?
1: Well, the reason I wanted to know why was that a particular thing happened I found the woman who worked in the office with Lyndon Johnson back in the, in nineteen thirty-seven and thirty-eight when he came to Congress, who said the following thing: She would be coming to work from another direction. Lyndon Johnson lived in a little hotel at the foot of Capitol Hill down by Union Station, so he would be walking, and he'd walk up the hill, and he'd start to be walking in front of the Capitol. And then all of a sudden, every morning, he'd break into a run. So she said something excited him there, you know. Well, what she actually said was it started in winter. I thought he was too poor to afford a top coat, but then the weather turned warm and he was still running. So I said, well, is there something there that thrilled him or excited him? And I finally, I went there many times. I took the same walk. I said, "No, n- there's nothing here." But you didn't run at first. You were no, running. I didn't. I, I didn't <laughs> run. I didn't run at all. <laughs> but I couldn't. Fi- I said, "Well, you know, there's nothing here." And then suddenly, I thought of something. Yeah, but Bob, you never took this walk at the same time that Lyndon Johnson did, which was early in the morning, when because he was a ranch, he got up with the sun. So I did it at five thirty or six. I don't remember what. Hour And then you realized, oh, there was something, because the sun is just coming up in the east, and he's walking in front of the whole east front of the Capitol, and it's lit up. All that marble with the heroic figures in the friezes is lit up like this blazing white thing. It's like saying, sure, he's running, because he comes from this land of little things log dwellings, all of a sudden he's seeing lit up for him everything that he can get if he succeeds in the Capitol. Of course he's excited. So I said, so you, Bob, you don't have to give the reader a lecture on what he's seen. You could, if you describe him well enough and the place well enough, the reader will feel what he's feeling. That's what I try to do. I don't I say, I don't say, I no, I succeeded in that, but that's what I try. Uh, well, I think you did. I want to talk about how
0: how difficult the life of a writer is and the, and the kind of writing that you do sustained research. You go to the place because I'm not sure that everyone appreciates that. And you talk about that in this new book, working you know, mostly people know about the folks that you've written about. They don't know as much about you. That's why this is such a blessing, I think to people and you've given so much to the public in terms of understanding and richness of understanding of not just Robert Moses and not just Lyndon Johnson, but power and all sorts of other democratic concepts and principles. But you got to make a living, right? <laughs> You know, you were not endowed, you know, I presume now you do okay, but at first you're, you're not endowed by some creator with a fund from which you can write future Pulitzer Prize winning books that take you multiple years to write. Explain a little bit, as you do in the book, what it was like for you just as a person and a young family man on a low salary, trying to sell the idea for the book and making ends meet.
1: Oh, well, that it was more not making ends meet. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a reporter for Newsday. We basically didn't have any savings. And we had a young son. And my advance, I was always kidding around that it was, I got the world's smallest advance, which was $5,000, of which they gave me $2,500. So And the schedule for writing, this was on the power broker. Yes. And the schedule that they
0: had set for writing the power broker, that you, that you set... Your prediction was it was going to take you how long? Nine months. Nine months.
1: (laughs) And and the thing was I got a grant. That enabled me to quit my job. And I said to Ina, oh, they're giving me a grant for a year, and it's only going to take nine months. We'll finally get to go to France. (laughs) But after a year, of course, I had barely started. We were really out of money. So we sold our house on Long Island. It was unfortunately before the real estate boom. So we cleared $25,000. We moved to an apartment in the Bronx, And that got us through a year. And then Ina was teaching, but I got hurt. I had to stay in bed for quite a lot of months. The next two or three years, we remember, uh, Prita, as just a time of being broke, really broke. After about four or five years, I went to my editor, who was not returning my telephone calls in an an expeditious way at all. I had given him half the manuscript. There was half a million words, and I didn't hear from him for a long time. Finally, I heard from him, and he takes me to dinner at a very inexpensive Chinese (laughs) restaurant on Broadway. I should have realized the significance of that. So he says that this is not my present publishing house, but the one I was at before— He says, oh, we really like the book. Keep going. And I said, can I have the other half of my advance, the other $2,500? And he said, I've never forgotten his words. He said, oh, no, Bob, I guess you didn't understand me. We like the book, but very few people are going to read a book on Robert Moses, and you have to be prepared for a very small printing. That was really the worst. When I look back on my life, that was the worst professional or, or. Non-professional. That was the word. I didn't know what to tell, Ina because we were completely out of money. And did you believe him? Did you... You had spent
0: time as an author, one might say an artist, and you believed in the work. And I'm guessing you believed that it was a story worth telling and, you know, writers' you know, lack of self-confidence from time to time, notwithstanding, you must have thought, if I do this right, people will read the book. And when your your editor tells you that they won't,
1: did you... What did, how did you process that? Well, I sort of believed it um, for the mo- because, you know, no one really knew who Robert, the extent of his power. I mean, I knew it. I knew there, there was a real significance in his story for democracy. I'd never, having been elected to anything that had so much power, where did he get it? But I didn't believe, no, I I never thought the book was going to sell a lot. But what happened was very dramatic. Not long after that, my editor left this publishing house so I could leave. There was a clause in my contract that I could leave. So I asked a friend of mine for the names of some agents. And he gave me the name of four agents, and I interviewed. The last one I interviewed was a woman named Lynn Nesbitt. This was in 1971. And Lyn. Called me and said uh, she was a she was a new agent too, sort of new, and she said I'd like to represent you, so come in and talk to me. I went in and she said, "Well, I'd like to represent you, but you have to tell me what you're so worried about." Now, this editor had made me feel no one was interested in this book, remember? So I didn't know. I looked worried, but of course I was worried. And I said, well, I'm worried that I won't have enough money to finish the book. And she said, well, how much are we talking about? I don't remember the figure, but it wasn't all that large. But it was enough for me to do another couple of years of work. And she looked at me and she said, is that what you're worried about? See, these are other sentences I've never forgotten because they were so (laughs) important in my life. She says, is that what you're worried about? Well, you can stop worrying right now. I can get you that by picking up this phone. Everyone in New York knows about this book. I can see the only thing you care about is writing. I have to find you an editor you can work with for the rest of your life. So my life changed, and that was 1971. Lynn has been my agent for 48 years. That editor, Bob Gottlieb, Robert Gottlieb, yeah. has been my editor. I'm going to ask about him too. For 48 years. Tell
0: the story, one of my favorite stories in the book, the story about how you auditioned, I guess, for editors. And like lots of things in life, important moments revolve
1: around food choice and, me- and a meal, <laughs> what, how, how, did you get, how did you get Gottlieb? Well, Lynn, Lynn said, I'm going to set up lunches for you with four editors and pick the one. They were all famous editors and see which one you'd like to, wor- if there's one you'd like to work with. The first three took me to, I don't remember if there was a Four Seasons, but whatever the equivalent in 1971, very fancy restaurant, and basically all said, I can make you a star which wasn't actually what I was interested in. And Gottlieb said, well, I don't go out for lunch, but we can have a sandwich at my desk and talk about your book. So I picked him.
0: And the rest is history.
1: Well, the rest rest is 48 (laughs) years. 48 years.
0: (laughs) You know, just while we're on the topic of your editor, how did it work? And I've had had a very excellent experience with my editor at Knopf, Peter Gathers. Nice name check for him here. Uh, (laughs) If there was a dispute about something, who deferred to whom? And when, why?
1: Well, we've had, I mean, it's 48 years of some very bitter fights, you know. But you always made up. I wouldn't use the word made up. <laughs> well, uh, you, stayed, you stayed together. We stayed together. Well, we have a lot of running disputes. One is he thinks I use too many semicolons. I think I don't. <laughs> so I can't tell you all that. But we both sort of believe in what we believe in. So there are real fights. But the thing about why I've stayed with him is he's a great, great editor. And the reason he's great for me is he's very smart and he thinks things through. If he makes a suggestion and you don't accept it, he's not going to just let that go by and turn the page. He's going to argue for why he thinks there should be a change. So in order for you have to defend it, and therefore, you have to think about why you're doing things, and that's a really as you're writing, you know, you have to think, what is the reason I'm doing this? Is you know, and, that, and that's helpful to me. Do you know when your writing is good? No, no still, I, still no, to this day. So,
0: you'll write a you'll write a chapter, and maybe as you've written it, you don't know, and you put it away, and you come back to it. Are there times when you say, "Hey, no, um, that's not bad." <laughs>
1: Not very often. often. (laughs) Usually uh, I rewrite in galleys, which I even rewrite in page proofs, which you're not allowed to do. But But that was made very clear to me. uh, (laughs) You cannot
0: do that. I I would rewrite. But I'm not Bob Carroll.
1: No, I would would rewrite in the finished book. I read sometimes, you know, when I'm looking back at something, and a chapter I've written for something in the next book, you know, I say, oh, this should be so much better, and you <laughs> see a way to improve it, but it's too late. So people refer to your books as biographies, and
0: I guess in the library and in the bookstore, if you go to the biography section, that's where you'll find the Power Broker, where you'll find the LBJ books. But you say, I don't really
1: regard my books as biographies. How come? Well, I don't. I, I never had this, the faintest interest in writing a book just to tell the life of a great man. From the minute I started thinking about writing books, I thought of using the lives of certain men as a way to examine political power because it's political power that I was interested in, how it affects people's lives, how it is created. I said, if you pick the right man, you can use the life of a man... To show what you want to show about political power, you have to pick the right man. I, I but how do you know when, as you've said,
0: once you've made the selection, then you begin an immersive process of learning all sorts of things about them, and your opinion of that man—and it happened, I believe, with Robert Moses,
1: and to some extent with Lyndon Johnson—also it changes. How do you select? Well, one thing didn't change. In order for this to work for me. This is just for me. I'm not giving other people advice. It has to be someone who's done something that no one else has ever done before because, therefore, if you can figure out how and why he did it, Then you will be getting to the essence of power. Now, Moses did something that no one else has done before. You know, we believe power comes from being elected from the ballot box. Here's a guy who was never elected. He had more power than anyone who was elected, more than any governor, more than any mayor and governor combined. And he held that power, think of this, for 44 years. And with it, he shaped the whole metropolitan area. So when I wanted to do another book, The thing that attracted me to Lyndon Johnson first wasn't his presidency. It was that when he was Senate majority leader, he made the Senate work. It never worked before him, really hasn't worked since him. For six years, when he was majority leader, the Senate was the center of governmental creativity and energy in Washington. It's not Eisenhower's civil rights bill. It's Lyndon Johnson's civil rights bill. So if
0: you had to, based on all of your experience, and there's no finer authority on power than you in many ways. What are the personality traits that allowed someone like Robert Moses to do that which had never been done before? And Lyndon Johnson also. And among the possibilities, and pick others, perseverance, self-confidence, intelligence, shamelessness, courage, maybe some negative qualities. What are the list of things that allowed folks like that to do unprecedented things?
1: Well, I would have to say it varies from Moses to Johnson. So for Moses. Well, Both Moses and Johnson were political geniuses. I mean, Moses at one time thought he'd be elected mayor of New York. He ran for governor of New York. He didn't win. So
0: not a a perfect genius. (laughs) uh, uh, Well,
1: people, let me tell you, people got a glimpse of what Robert Moses was like. That could be really frightening. I remember talking to him. He was already 78 years old, and when he got angry— he was frightening and um, so he ch- ended up choosing a path through which he became more powerful correct he went into a room with a yellow legal pad and he thought of a way that public authorities could be a source of great political power so much political power that he couldn't be touched by anyone who was elected no one knew what he was doing when he he suggested this legislation to uh, to deal with the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority and the other authority. No one in Albany realized what they were passing. Only he knew it. Lyndon Johnson was a way of finding power in places that no one had ever seen it before in the Senate. The quality that they both had is a genius in creating political power.
0: And how about understanding what animates other people? From my reading of some of the, the Johnson books... Maybe it's not the top quality. But Johnson knew every strength and weakness of every person he ever
1: had to reckon with. You are absolutely—Johnson, that was a key thing. I mean, he was a genius in reading people, of knowing what they were afraid of, what they really wanted. Moses, the opposite, because he couldn't deal with human beings. So he thinks of a way of getting power without human beings being involved. You spoke before—
0: You've talked about the need to, when assessing power and analyzing power, to also talk about the other side of that, the powerless.
1: When was the first time you realized that? The first time I realized that, boy, what a good question. First time. Well, I guess the first time I I realized that had to do less with Robert Moses than with Al Smith, who was the governor and his great patron. You know, we're all taught that power, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. I don't happen to believe that power always corrupts. I think that sometimes power can cleanse. And one example is Al Smith. He is the most ruthless of Tammany henchmen. on his way up to the governorship, and he gets the governorship, and he goes to the Tammany bosses, and he says to them, now you have to free me. I have to do things for our people, by which he meant the Irish. And he passes all the social welfare legislation. I mean, uh, disability benefits, workmen's compensation, unemployment insurance, widows' pensions. Think of what the life of the Irish was when there was no government help them. When, if your husband died, the first thing the state did, if you applied for aid, was to take your children away and put them in an institution. That's the kind of thing that you said, oh, that's what government can do here. That's how government can help people. So you, you start to think about government. And the, the real thing, you ask very good questions, the real awakening for me was about Robert Moses. Uh, When he was building highways, you know, he would run these highways right through the middle of neighborhoods in New York. I'm reading all these textbooks on highways, and they all mention the human cost, that's in quote, human cost of highways. But no one, not one book talked about what the human cost was and I said to Ina I'm never going to write this book about the great highway builder without being able to examine and tell people what the human cost is so I finally figured out it wasn't fast a way to do that was to take one mile he built 627 miles of expressways and parkways I'll take one mile and examine that one mile and see what the human cost is So I picked a neighborhood in the Bronx, one mile of the Cross Bronx Expressway. It's called East Tremont. And I found people, like 15,000 of them, that he had evicted. You know, he evicted for his highways 250,000 people. For his urban renewal projects, he evicted 250,000 more. That's half a million people. So what did it mean for these people? I tried to find, and it was hard then, now we have a national telephone directory on our computers. Those days, if someone moved away trying to find out, no, that took a lot of time. But I would interview these couples from East Tremont. Now, they had a real community there. It was a real neighborhood. It was lower middle class. They mostly worked in the garment district. They They were not well off financially. But as long as they had their community with their friends and their relatives, they had a lot. All of a sudden, you get this notice from Robert Moses, you have 90 days to move, and they're scattered to the wind. So I went to find them. In my notes, when I interviewed them, the word that appears that they said over and over is lonely. And I suddenly said, loneliness, you know, that's the part of the human cost of highways. And I said, oh, I have to show this just like I showed how he wielded power. I have to show the effect of power on the powerless. I have to really write about these this neighborhood, so that takes so much. Time. You know, you have to read, you have to read the weekly newspapers from that thing to, to learn. You have to find the community leaders. It takes months and months. That took six months to research that, and,
0: and some of that was unnecessary, because decisions about where the highway would curve and where it would go and who would be evicted, were made sometimes based on financial reasons, or political Political reasons. reasons. And as you write, vastly fewer numbers of folks needed to have been displaced. Yes. But Robert Moses, powerful man behind
1: the scenes, made particular decisions to get it done. Yes. There was an alternate route just two blocks away that paralleled this route. He tore down 54 six and seven story apartment houses for this one mile. If he took the other route two blocks away, parallel, exactly the same It would require, as I recall, him to tear down just six little tenements. But doing it that way, the easier way would have required the destruction of a business that was very profitable to Bronx Democratic politicians. So he took the other route. So there
0: came to be a time, I I think, that you asked Robert Moses about the human cost. Yes. And did he feel bad about it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no. He uh, you've really read my books very very carefully. This is a, it's a real treat to be interviewed by you. I remember I asked him, you know, did you ever expect to lose this fight up there over the Railroad highway and he said uh the exact quotes in this book but he said something like, "Oh no, no. There was no uh they I, they, they just stirred up the animals there. So I just held fast. That was all I had to do." And I'm thinking I'm interviewing all these people whose lives were ruined, needlessly ruined, by Robert Moses, and he cared about it, I would say, zero. And how would that make you feel? Got me really angry, to be perfectly honest. I, re- I remember that particular interview, because I was so awed by him and by the brilliance of his mind, and all of a sudden I was very angry about things. You know what we're talking, which relates to you, your work and your books. When we talk about things like this, we're talking about basically justice and injustice. And Moses was, because of his absolute power in the fields in which he was exercising, which was every field of public works, he could perpetrate these terrible injustices on masses of people.
0: Yeah. So when you write a book versus... Doing a piece of journalism that you used to do, do you have a different mindset in in your relationship with and feelings about the protagonist? So when you when you got angry at Robert Moses and these revelations came to you, and he didn't seem to care at all about the people who he had caused suffering and displacement, and you wanted to, I think you said once that you want, you, you felt like punching him in the teeth. Did you think about how that might affect the writing of the
1: book? Yeah. I always felt you better not let it affect your writing of the book. If you can write just the facts and write it well enough, the reader will draw the conclusion. I always try very hard not to let my own feelings influence the writing. I just try to make the writing show what happened. So we go back to the end of
0: the book. Why aren't they grateful to Robert Moses? Should people be
1: grateful to Robert Moses? I think they should be grateful for some things. The things he did when he was young, the creation of Jones Beach, the entire Long Island park system, wonderful, magnificent things. Jones Beach was about to be swallowed up by developers. We wouldn't have a Jones Beach. Those things were wonderful. Do I think that his starving of mass transit, which we're now Every time I hear today about the subways being crowded and breaking down, I said, that's because starting, you know, in in the Power Broker, there's a chapter called Point of No Return, where after the Second World War, everyone saw the sub- money had to be put into rapid transit. Maintenance had been deferred for 10 years on the subways. And he took that money through his genius. He threw a number of maneuvers. He diverted all that money to bridges and highways. And the city is suffering from it today. Should we be grateful for Lyndon Johnson? Well, in some ways, incredibly grateful. I mean, I don't know that we would have Medicare today if Lyndon Johnson hadn't been president. I, I feel we would not have the Voting Rights Act today if Lyndon Johnson hadn't been president at that moment and had the ability to ram it through Congress. However, You have to say the human cost of Vietnam was immense. On the things that he did well,
0: like the Voting Rights Act that you mentioned, and other things for which we should be grateful, and that he accomplished sometimes through ruthlessness and sometimes, including elections, through maybe some mendacity, (laughs) should we
1: forgive all that because it was in the service of things for which we should be grateful? I don't think you can, as I said, you ask terrific questions. That's really a terrific question. It's one that I don't really know. I don't know that you can separate means from ends. You'd like to say he used these means, but they were for great ends. I don't know that that, that's possible. In politics, at least. Because part of the end was Vietnam.
0: Is Is there someone's story, and I know you don't want to write biographies and you're writing about power, but is there some other person through whom Thinking back, you might have delighted in telling the story of power.
1: Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, Belle Moskowitz, no one knows that name. She was a plump, motherly Jewish woman who had the most brilliant political mind, and she was Al Smith's chief political advisor. He would never do anything in this groundbreaking legislation that he passed. Whenever they have a meeting, she'd sit in the corner very quietly, but at the end of every meeting, before he took a decision, he'd say, what do you think, Mrs. M.? Now, Robert Moses told me she was the one who taught him how to get things done. She was in many one of the most powerful women in the United States in the 1920s. No one even knows her name. I used to put her name into every lecture I gave in the hope that someone would get inspired to do a biography <laughs> of her. There's one book, but it's a rather boring book. But she is a fascinating figure to me. So you were writing a more traditional full-length memoir, correct? Yes.
0: And as you said earlier today, you really can't get going on a book, start the writing of a book until you know the last line of the book. First, let me ask you, do you know the last line of your memoir? Yes. Will you share it with us? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was okay. worth a shot. <laughs> I thought it was. Uh, Bob Carroll, Robert Caro, it's been such a pleasure and an honor and a delight to talk to you. It's been great I could go be. on for far longer, but I know you have other things to do and you have uh, books to finish. So again, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So as this podcast drops on the morning of Thursday, April 11th, 2019. I note that it's a significant anniversary. It's the 12th anniversary of the death of Kurt Vonnegut, noted American novelist. And as we begin this occasional series of talking to writers and I tremendously enjoyed the conversation with Bob Caro and as I said in the interview, he influenced my thinking in various ways and educated me about so many things having to do with the government and with power. Uh, there are other influences on me as well and Kurt Vonnegut was one of those people as a teenager in New Jersey. The first book I read by Kurt Vonnegut was God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. It was actually assigned in my American literature class by Mrs. Tomlinson. If you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, you know that she was the best teacher I ever had. If you're listening, thanks again, Mrs. T. Uh, But then I became a voracious reader of, of Vonnegut. I read every single one of his novels. I read his collection of short stories that I think was published in the 50s called Welcome to the Monkey House. I think about them still. And from time to time, this may seem odd, when I was writing my own book, even though the style is different, the tone is different, the subject matter is a little bit different, but not completely, because he talks about human beings and I talk about human beings, I would not only consult with a book that I've mentioned before, Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, but also would turn to sometimes Breakfast of Champions or Slaughterhouse-Five and just you know read a passage or two. So I think it's appropriate from time to time when all sorts of nutty things are going on in the country to go back to novels maybe we loved when we were young, and maybe you should reread. One of the things I liked about Kurt Vonnegut, and he's not for everybody, but I was a deep, deep admirer of his writing, is that he would talk about things of great seriousness, including suicide and war and genocide and terrible things that he felt deeply, but wrote about them more simply than other people that I have read. Just as an example, this is from Breakfast of Champions. This is how Kurt Vonnegut talks about political assassination and about hijacking. Sometimes, people would put holes in famous people so they could be at least fairly famous too. Sometimes, people would get on airplanes, which were supposed to fly to someplace, and they would offer to put holes in the pilot and co-pilot unless they flew the airplane to someplace else. Pretty good descriptions. I'm actually reading that passage from my own paperback edition *A Breakfast of Champions that I purchased way back in high school. It's pretty dog-eared. And if you'll indulge me for just another minute, I want to leave you with three of my other favorite quotes of all time from Kurt Vonnegut that I have used from time to time when I speak publicly. One is this from The Sirens of Titan, a novel he wrote in 1959, in which he said, There is no reason why good cannot triumph as often as evil. The triumph of anything is a matter of organization. If there are such things as angels, I hope that they are organized along the lines of the mafia. He also said, and this is something I think about in a novel called Slapstick, please, a little less love and a little more common decency. And then finally, in his last book, Vonnegut wrote this, which I also think about from time to time. The only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Robert Caro. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to at Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malovsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper, and the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Hey, stay tuned listeners. As many of you know, I've been on the road promoting my new book, Doing Justice. On April 10th, I spoke about the book with Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center, who is also the host of the podcast, We the People. You can watch the video of that conversation on the National Constitution Center's website, constitutioncenter.org, or listen to it on the Center's other podcast, live at America's Town Hall, which is available wherever you listen. So check out We the People, and Live at America's Town Hall podcasts.